I'm going to speak to you this morning on a new day, a new day. I know some of you like to see an outline and write down points. Well, you get to make up your own points today. So just enjoy the story, and there will be some ideas that I think that uh, you'll be able to, to grab onto and take with you. But uh, this is not a point-by-point sermon, but a, a look at this exciting, dramatic, and powerful story that we see recorded in John's Gospel, chapter 20. It was a week that began on a very high note. Jesus had entered Jerusalem to the accolades of pilgrims who were there for the great religious observance of Passover. But then it took a tragic turn. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested, interrogated. He went through both a Jewish and a Roman hearing, neither of which could really convict him of anything. But he was sentenced to death anyway, and he was executed by the Roman method of punishing the worst criminals and the lowest outcasts of society, crucifixion. There was no death more painful or more humiliating, and the friends of Jesus felt the loss deeply. There were both men and women who followed Jesus during his life and listened to his teaching, and there was one who was especially devoted to him called Mary Magdalene. And the scriptures tell us here that she came very early in the morning to the tomb where Jesus' body had been placed. And the different gospel writers record different groups that came and went to the tomb. But here, John's account focuses especially on three individuals, Mary and then Peter and John. Jesus had rescued Mary. He had delivered her from being literally under Satan's control. He rescued her from being demon-possessed, according to Luke chapter 8. Some speculate that Mary was a very immoral woman due to the fact that her home city of Magdala was known for this, but there's no biblical or factual basis to support that idea. What we do know is that she was one of the ones who was very intensely devoted to Jesus, and she grieved deeply when he died. And what Mary discovered when she came to the tomb was surprising and unsettling. As it says in John chapter 20, verse 1, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So, so she sees that the stone that secured the body of Jesus inside the tomb had been rolled away. Now, for you and me here this morning, that's great news, isn't it, right? That's really good news. But to Mary, something was very wrong. The stone being moved meant that grave robbers had stolen his body, or the Jewish authorities had moved it from Joseph's family tomb, a dignified place for his body to rest, to a criminal's grave or something like that. To Mary, not only was her Savior dead, but on top of that, his body was missing. So to the people who cared about him and had built their lives around him, this caused confusion, and in Mary's case, probably even a level of despair. 
Now, as I prepared for this, I, I read one, one author who said that there is one situation in the New Testament, only one situation, one scenario, in which any of Jesus' disciples are described as running. And it is the events surrounding this scene of the empty tomb. Look at verse 2. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And it seems like it turned into a race. The other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. Isn't it funny? And by the way, the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is describing himself that way. So this is the author saying this. So John says, I won. I got there first. Kind of funny to see that, isn't it? Well, they were in a hurry. What Peter and then John saw gave them a shock. John looked in. Peter stepped in to that dark, chilly cave. And what verses 5 through 7 describe for us is that they saw something that really caused them concern and surprise as well. Verse 5 says, And he, that's John, stooping down, looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there. Now, if you look back at chapter 19 and verse 40, chapter 19 and verse 40, it says, Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it. They wrapped it in strips of linen with spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So they, they would cover the body with these spices to help to, to uh, mask the smell of a decomposing body. And then they would wrap it up tightly to keep it all together. And they would leave a body in a tomb for, for months and sometimes years. And it would decompose and it would... It would Really result in these fragments they would gather together and put in a small stone box. So the, the wrapping kept it all together while that took place. And they probably did that somewhat in a hurry when, uh, when they were preparing Jesus' body because they had to finish before the beginning of the Sabbath. So then, then we see here, here Peter and John look in and, and, and Peter steps inside and they see those linen cloths lying there. What Peter and John saw showed something very important. It showed that Jesus' body had not been carried away. It wasn't stolen. It wasn't moved. It was not carried away. This would be like opening a casket. A man has died and he's been placed in a casket and somebody opens the casket and, and there's a suit of clothes lying there. He was buried, he was placed in the casket in a, in a suit and tie. And the suit of clothes is lying there just as if he had been lying there, but there's no person there. And maybe even the tie has been loosened and rolled up and placed neatly in a corner. That's what they saw here. Not where someone hurriedly unwrapped the body and took it away. In fact, if somebody had taken away, why would they even unwrap it? So this is what we would call an evidence so if you're examining a scene and you see this, there's, there's evidence pointing to the fact that Jesus' body was not stolen or removed. In fact, the only conclusion that they could have drawn at this point is that Jesus' body had passed right through it, right through these cloths. Now, if you've ever done a puzzle and you put the pieces of the puzzle together and you're almost finished... And there's a last piece that needs to go in that puzzle to complete the puzzle and, and make the scene complete. 
And you, you take that one piece and you put it in place and maybe it's a mountain scene or puppies or old cars or something. And you put that last piece in place and it's like, oh, there it is, the complete picture. For one of these men, seeing those strips of cloth lying on the shelf in the tomb was like the last piece of a puzzle. Look at what John writes, starting in verse 8. Then the other disciple, and that's John, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, and, it says, he believed. This is John's personal testimony. He's saying, I saw and I believed. Now look at the explanation in verse 9. For as yet they, speaking of the disciples in general, did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now you may know, I'm sure you understand that the Bible, the New Testament, was not originally written in English. It was written in the Greek language. And in the Greek language, sometimes there, there are words that, that we can understand a little bit differently than we see them in English. And when it says he did not know, another way to say that that would reflect what that original language says is they had not understood. So they knew about verses from the Old Testament that alluded to or pointed to the fact that the Savior would come and, and part of what he would do is that he would not only give his life as the Savior, but he would also rise from the dead. And they knew about those verses. They maybe even could have quoted those verses. They were taught those verses in the synagogue, but they had not yet understood what they meant and the significance of them. In fact, there's one particular verse that we don't know, John might have been referring to. It's Psalm 16, verse 10. Listen to what it says from the Psalms. It says, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. That's the abode of the dead. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And that was a prediction in the Old Testament, Psalm 16, verse 10, that Jesus, who would come as the, the Israelites' Messiah, the Anointed One, and as everybody's Savior, would not stay dead, and that his body would not even begin to compose, decompose. In fact, when Peter later preached on that great spectacular event of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and he preached to thousands and, and thousands believed in Jesus as Savior. He quoted that verse and referred it to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So again, we don't know what exactly John was referring to, but it was probably something like that, if not that. What John was saying was that he and others had not yet understood that that's what a verse like that meant. And then he saw the pieces of cloth and realized that nobody had carried Jesus away, that somehow Jesus had just passed right through those grave clothes, and he was no longer there, and likely he was no longer dead, and he saw and believed. He fully realized the significance of Jesus' death and the truth of his resurrection, and he believed in him. He believed in him. So think about yourself. Let's think about ourselves. For some of you, there was a time when you did not understand. Maybe you heard the Bible. Maybe you were aware of some of the things that the Bible talks about. And you know there's somebody named Jesus. And you learn about this thing called salvation. 
And one day, maybe it was when you were very young, maybe as a teenager, maybe as an adult, the pieces came together for you and realization came over you. And you not only understood it intellectually, but you thought, you know what? Jesus is the Savior. He's the Son of God who died. And when he died, he died in my place for my sins. And not only did he die, but he also was raised from the dead. Jesus really came back from the dead, proving himself to be the Son of God and showing that he has victory over sin and death. And he can grant us eternal life because he himself possesses it. And you believed in that, right? It became real to you. You believed in Jesus because you understood. There was a man that we read about in the book of Acts, and a tragedy happened. He was going to lose his job and maybe his life. He's known as the Philippian jailer. And he came to Paul and Silas, and he said, What must I do to be saved? And their answer was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So there it is, right? There's the message. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how you can be saved. Wasn't there something more? I mean, that seems so simple, so easy. It seems so free. That is the first step. The first step is to believe in Jesus for who he is, the Son of God who died for your sins and rose again. And the Bible does tell us that there is nothing that you and I can do to merit God's forgiveness or to earn eternal life, to know that we're going to heaven when we die and we'll be with God forever. Nothing we can do to do that for ourselves. In fact, the Bible says, by grace you've been saved through faith. So believing, that's what faith is. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God and it's not of works lest anyone should boast. So God's word makes it very clear. It's not by works that we can do, religious or moral or humanitarian or anything, that gets us salvation, forgiveness of sins. It's a gift of God's grace. But that is the first step. And those verses in Ephesians chapter 2 go on to say, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You are created as a new person in Jesus. For good works, which God has prepared before that we should walk in them. So faith in Christ is the beginning point. You are not saved by works, but you are saved so that you can do the work God has made you to do. And that is the blessing of serving him. So all of a sudden, for John, it was a new day. It was a new day. He didn't understand. He sees evidence the understanding comes about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He came to give his life and then to, to rise from the dead. And John believed. He believed. But Mary was still in the dark. Verse 10 tells us that Peter and John raced back. They took off. And it seems that, that Mary was left there alone or arrived back there after they had gone. Again, the focus is on Mary. And verse 11 says, but Mary, John 20, verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she looked, stooped down and looked into the tomb. Now we think of weeping as maybe kind of a soft shedding of tears, a few sniffles. Uh, I won't attempt to demonstrate it for you, but this is something very different than what we're used to, right? Uh, this was wailing. 
So just imagine, maybe you've even heard someone, and there's, there's some cultures that express their grief in this way, a loud wailing, and that is probably what she was doing here. She was expressing her grief. She was, she was uh, expressing the, the despair that she felt and the loss that she was experiencing. And she was intrigued by this open entrance to the tomb. And, and so she leaned over and she peered inside. And verse 12 tells us there were two angels in there. So again, surprise. And it's kind of funny too that she doesn't seem to react. Maybe she was preoccupied with her grief. But they speak to her. And now she gets the surprise of her life that she will probably talk about for the rest of her days. So the angels ask her, why are you weeping? She says, they've taken away my Lord, verse 13. I do not know where they've laid him. Verse 14, now when she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And and if you've noticed, maybe a a theme, a little bit of a theme in, in this passage is not knowing Right? Not understanding, not comprehending. John and the other disciples had not understood those scriptures. Now, here, Jesus is standing in front of her, but she does not recognize him. And verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Of course, Jesus knows the answer, but he's engaging with her. He's graciously, with great care, just leading her along through this process of comprehension. And she's supposing him to be the gardener. She thinks he's the, the, the person who maintains the tomb area and maybe the, the flowers and plants around there that make it beautiful. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, this very personal encounter is an example of how God cares for each one of us and how he engages you and me individually. When Jesus said her name, she recognized him. And this is an amazing truth about our God. And yes, of course, Jesus had known her before, but our God Our Savior Jesus knows us individually. He doesn't just know that you exist. He doesn't just know about you. He knows you. Now, would you walk with me a couple of places in Scripture just for a few minutes here? Go all the way back to Psalm 139. The book of Psalms, right about the middle of your Bible. And Psalm number 139. 139. And here, a man that we know about, David, who was a shepherd and then became the king, speaks these words of of thanks to God and recognizing how God knows him personally. So look with me at Psalm 139. It starts out, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. But there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So we see not only his knowledge, but his care. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. And now look at what he talks about. He reaches back, not only to, to his current life or his past life, but even to the time before he entered this world. And he says in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame, my structure, we might say my, my skeleton, uh, my, the way I was put together physically and physiologically was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they, are all, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Wow. That's saying God knows me from the, the very beginning of my life to the very end, all my days, every detail of my life, where I am, what I'm doing, even what I'm talking about, and what are the thoughts in my mind. Incredible. God knows us. It's an amazing truth about our God. Just because there are billions of people in the world does not mean that God does not personally know each one. Now let's take it a step further and go with me back to the New Testament, the same book that we're looking at, but John chapter 10. John chapter 10. Jesus is using the idea of a shepherd with sheep to talk about the relationship he has with those who believe in him and follow him. I just want to read verses 3 and 4 for us. So look at John chapter 10 verses 3 and 4. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. So he's talking about the shepherd, the end of verse 2, the shepherd of the sheep. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So the sheep for whom the good shepherd gave his life are known by him and he calls them by name. He knows your name. So back in John chapter 20, Verse 16, he says, Mary. And that's how God knows us. Yes, of course, he was acquainted with her before, but he knows every one of us to that same degree. You are one of his creatures. He made you. He knows you. If you're saved, you're one of his children. He knows you personally. He is the shepherd for the sheep whom he loves and he cares for. And I also find it interesting, back here in John chapter 20, when he says Mary, he's addressing her, so there's no reason for him to say Mary Magdalene. That's how she's distinguished from other Marys in the New Testament. But there may be a little bit of stigma to that. Mary the Magdalene. 
And when he addresses her, there is no association with her hometown, with her distant past, whatever that may have represented. Just Mary, Mary. Truly, for Mary, it was a new day. She didn't just find Jesus' body, did she? She didn't finally track down where the missing corpse was. She found him. Or we might say more accurately, Jesus found her. And then he gave her a little discipleship lesson. And we find that in, in verse 17. I'll read verse, the end of verse 16. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher, so she recognized him now. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. So let's talk about what Jesus was telling her here. First of all, the beginning of verse 17, when he says, Stop clinging to me. It's possible, and I think likely, that, that she, was, she had dropped to her knees and was prostrate before him in worship and had her, her hands, maybe even her arms, around the lower part of his legs. In fact, that's what's described in Matthew 28 in verse 9. It says of some of the other disciples who saw the risen Christ, they held him by the feet and worshipped him. So it's, it's possible, and I think likely, that's what Mary Magdalene was, was doing here. And so, so what he's saying here is not, don't touch me, leave me alone, get away. It wasn't that kind of a response. It seems he was saying, you don't need to hold on to me, Mary. It's okay. I'm not going anywhere yet, right? Because she just had that intense devotion, and we might even say attachment to Jesus Christ. And he's reassuring her. But he is telling her that he would ascend back to the Heavenly Father. He says, I have not yet ascended. I am ascending. So there was a, a movement toward that moment when he would leave this earth and ascend back to his Father. Let's touch on that just for a minute. This is, Jesus' ascension is a critical step to his saving work. He came, he lived, he died for our sins, he rose again, and then he would ascend. As we look back, he did ascend to the Heavenly Father. Why is that important? Listen to this verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Listen to it. Christ died and is risen and is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. So Jesus ascended and is now, right now, at the Father's right hand, and the activity that he is performing in our behalf is that he is interceding for us. What that means is that he perpetually represents you to God the Father. So you're saved. Your sins are forgiven. Wonderful. It's great for today. What about tomorrow? What about next week? What about 10 years from now? What about when you stumble and fail and falter and fall, the sins that we all commit in the course of our lives? What happens then? What about when you die? Then what? Questions, uncertainty, guilt. But you know what? We know 
Because Jesus rose from the dead. Then he could ascend to the Father. And because he ascended to the Father, he is there now perpetually representing you and me. And that gives you the ironclad bedrock assurance that you are saved and will always be saved and will not only reach the end of this life as a believer, but will experience the blessings of God forever because you are linked to the one who ever lives to intercede for you. It is his righteousness and his sacrifice that saves us and that keeps us saved, and he represents you and me before the Father as our mediator, as our advocate. But then we also see that there's a new kind of relationship that the disciples would have with Jesus. Notice how he refers to them and to God. He says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. Go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and to your father and to my God and to your God. For some reason, Jesus is dividing this out and talking about my father, my God, and your father and your God. There are different ideas as to why he may be doing that. The one that makes sense to me is that he was emphasizing that he has a unique relationship with God, his father. There's only one son of God, and that's Jesus. This is my father. Nobody else has the kind of relationship with God the Father that Jesus does. So he's, he's emphasizing that, but he's also making another point, isn't he? Your father, he said, and your God. In fact, he calls those disciples what? What does he call them? Can you see it in the text? My, my brothers. I think we could expand that out and say, my brothers and sisters. Because, in fact, Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, being a son represented a level of privilege and of inheritance in that day. So, you're a son, not in the sense of, of that there are no daughters of God, but in the sense that we have the rights and privileges of a son in that culture. You're all the sons of God. Paul went on to say, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's the idea of being united with Jesus, have put on Christ, and he said in Galatians 3.28, listen, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So this, this may be the seed form here, Jesus is saying here in John chapter 20, verse 17, that, that there's a new kind of relationship now that Jesus' disciples have with him and with God the Father. He says, I'm ascending to the Father. I'm going to be your mediator. I'll be at the Father's right hand. I am your Lord and God is your sovereign, but I am also your brother and God is your Father. There's a new kind of family relationship that believers have with Jesus Christ and with the Heavenly Father. So, if you believe in Jesus, you have a new relationship with him. You're not just part of an institution. You're no, you don't just belong to a religious group. You have a personal relationship with God. What this means is you can pray. You can just... just instantaneously, not, not even say it out loud, barely even think it, just a, a, an impulse in your heart that says, Father, and you're in immediate contact 
with your heavenly father. He is your father. Jesus is your brother. He is your mediator. He represents you. You belong. You can pray. God will speak to you through his word. He has given you his spirit to enlighten you and to guide you and to convict you and to enable and help you to live for him. That's part of being in his family. He speaks to you through his word. You can have fellowship with him now and you will be with him, your heavenly father, with the family of God after you die. Now, Jesus gave Mary a mission, didn't he? You see the word in verse 17? Go. He would eventually tell them all to go, right? He said, go and and tell them these truths. Share this with them. And so she did. Verse 18 says, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So Jesus would eventually pass on this mission to all of his followers. An example of this are his words right before he ascended, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be witnesses to me. What is a witness? A person who has observed and experienced something so that they can share what they've, they've seen and experienced with others. He said, you'll be my witnesses. So they had witnessed the resurrected Christ in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And that mission has passed on to every generation of Christians, including us today. Share the good news. That is the mission he has given to you and to me. There are numerous evidences, even in this passage, that Jesus rose from the dead. One of the key pieces of evidence is the testimony of eyewitnesses. And guess who is the first person to see Jesus alive? It is Mary Magdalene. Everybody else saw him later, but she was the first. Mary of Magdala. Having lived in captivity and slavery to multiple demons that possessed her, now the one who not only saw the resurrected Lord, but heard his words, he spoke to her and for a moment touched him, touched his his resurrected, glorified body, And she was instructed by Jesus to break the news. He's alive. What a day. What a day for little Mary. John saw the grave clothes and believed. Mary saw Jesus and surely believed. Now there was a skeptic. We know about him, right? What was his name? You remember? Verse 24. Yep, there was Thomas, right? Well, then he saw Jesus, and he believed too, didn't he? What are we to do? Look at what the end of verse 27 says. Jesus says to Thomas at the end of verse 27, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you have believed. Now look at what Jesus says next. Look at what he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
Jesus is recognizing the fact that there will be many individuals who do not have the opportunity, like Mary and, and Peter and John and Thomas and the others, to see in front of their faces the risen Lord. But they will have the opportunity to believe in him because they will be able to receive the information and examine the, the, the evidence and, and hear the story and process the truth and put the pieces together. And he says they, they are blessed. Even though they don't see, they can and they will believe as well. The scriptures tell us Jesus died and rose again. Eyewitnesses testified that Jesus rose again. We aren't there, but we all have the information and Jesus tells us what to do. In fact, look at verse 30. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31, but these are written that you, John says to his readers, to his listeners, to you and me today, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the promised one, the predicted one, the, the anointed one, the, the savior of the Jewish people and of all people, and the son of God. Yes, he became a man, but he is the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Not just a better life now, eternal life. Life that is truly forever. So if you have not believed in Jesus, you can admit that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. You can believe on Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again. And you can call on him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. Be my Savior. And he will. He will. If you have believed, be encouraged your salvation is certain now and forever because Jesus died and rose again. Enjoy your relationship with him. Take comfort in what the resurrection provides. Eternal life for you, but also for those you know and love who have gone to be with the Lord and whom you will see again. It is certain because of the resurrection of Jesus. And tell others of the risen Christ. It was a new day for Jesus. He was dead and he rose again. It was a new day for John who, who went from having incomplete understanding to having faith. It was definitely a new day for Mary, now a sister to Jesus and the daughter of God. And it can be a new day for you and me as well. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you have shown us and revealed to us in the scriptures. Thank you that we can be transported back in some form to that wonderful, glorious morning that we can read and understand and process and, and learn from. But how I pray that just as, Lord Jesus, your death and resurrection and ascension change the lives of those individuals for the rest of their days, and for eternity, and use them to spread the word that you do the same for us here today. Help us to process and learn, but also to respond and to live accordingly. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.